listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, the 27th of November to the 1st of December. Highlights this week include uh, an excellent review of The Disaster Artist by Hayley Inch, a film we all went and saw together last week and enjoyed very much. And also Conrad Marshall came in to talk about his book, Yellow and Black, A Season with Richmond. It's a very excellent book and I enjoyed talking about the Tigers for 15 minutes. I did. Did you really enjoy it? I don't know if Jeff enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it, I thought it was a great interview, uh, and also we spoke to Natasha Blucher from the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre about what's been happening on Manus Island, and we chatted about house inspections, looking at houses, looking at it through other people's stuff, opening doors that you <coughs> just shouldn't open, yeah, being a creep, yeah. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. You're tuned to Breakfast is here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Natasha Blucher is the Detention Advocacy Manager at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. She's recently returned from Manus Island, but she's now joining us live in the Breakfast studio. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. What is the latest in the uh, in the situation of the men on Manus Island? The PNG Mobile Squad have now totally cleared the camp in which they were staying. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. They've totally cleared the camp. Um, all of the men are now at three of the locations in Loringau, um, which is the main town on Manus Island. Uh, however, it seems that there's not enough space in the three locations that they've been moved to. So there was a bit of a a problem over the weekend with people not having a place to sleep. So sleeping in classrooms, sleeping in a prayer room, um, people don't have sort of basic needs like soap and toothpaste and things like that. Um, so it's been, yeah, quite difficult. And when were you over there? So I returned just over a week ago um, on the Friday before last. And so you were there when the, the camp had closed? I was there when the camp had closed and it was sort of under siege, so it was kind of blockaded in by the Navy and the PNG mobile squad. Um, And we took a boat in the middle of the night to get into the camp. Wow. Okay, so so can you give us a sense of what Manus Island is like and what the conditions at the camp are like? Because we've heard so much about it, but it's rare to find someone who's actually been there themselves. Yeah, Manus Island was a bit difficult for me to get a good look at because we had to really stay, I guess, undercover is the best way you'd describe it. So we stayed... um, with some really supportive locals uh, and we weren't really able to travel around on Manus because there was a lot of, um, despite what our government says, there was a lot of ABF, um, that's Australian Border Force, and other Australian-funded organisations there who were sort of running the show um, and we knew that if they saw us, they would know that what our intention was and do their best to prevent us getting into the camp. That is extraordinary in and of itself that you have to almost go in there as if you're sneaking into, you know... Uh, some sort of hostile regime. That's right. We needed to really stay away from Australians because we knew that they would recognise who we were and and know what we were going to do there, which was to get into the camp itself and see what was going on. We had a lot of reports coming out of the camp, but it was kind of hard, again, to get a, a real grip of what it was like. What were your impressions of the camp itself when you went in? It was horrific. I've not really seen anything like that in my life. Um, We came in, as I say, on a boat in the middle of the night and kind of had to row in because there's Navy on either side of the camp um, without lights and without any sound and we sort of came in and then were guided into the camp quickly by the guys themselves. Um, And 
I was just overwhelmed, I guess, with the smells initially because if you think about 400 men living in a camp environment with no electricity and tropical heat, um, there was garbage breaking down that they'd kind of put into shipping containers and tried to close off and um, and keep separate from the rest of the living areas. But that was really difficult. The toilets were overflowing with diarrhoea because there wasn't access to safe water and everybody was really sick. Um, we were walking around the camp and there was uh, dirty sheets like laying down in corridors where people were just laying down kind of listlessly trying to sleep in the heat. Um, it was, yeah, it was horrific. I ended up having to go outside and throw up a few times because Jesus. it was just worse than anything I've ever seen. We saw footage of the men being dispersed with people from the mobile squad hitting them with sticks. Do you know what state the men are in now? Are they injured? Are they getting medical treatment? Um, MSF, Medicines Sans Frontières, is there, thankfully. Um, apparently they've had approval from the PNG government to go into the, the new kind of transit accommodation areas, but they're still being prevented from actually going inside despite having the appropriate paperwork. So the guys are coming out, as far as I can see it, to see MSF, but there are a lot of people with um, physical injuries, but also really bad psychological injuries, because they've been locked up for four and a half years. They've had a number of different attacks on them, um, sometimes including, I mean, one man was killed, Reza Barati, we know about that, um, and there were other attacks where uh, guns were shot into the centre and things like that. So that whole kind of two-day event where people were hit with sticks and moved onto buses was really, really terrifying because I think for them they didn't know just how bad it was going to get. Um, so everybody was terrified. So there are a lot of people who are really struggling with their mental health now. What's the feeling like among the locals at Manus at the moment about the situation? Manus is a really small community and it's already expensive to import food and things like that. They had their marketplace burned down about six weeks ago and that um, issue hasn't been solved. Like, it's unclear how that happened. Uh, there's not enough food on the shelves to, to feed the local Manusians. So one of the major issues was how are we going to even feed these 400 to 600 men when they do move into town? Um the hospital isn't up to scratch, so I went there and had a walk around and I think it would struggle, as in many developing countries, it would struggle to support the local population effectively in terms of their health. Um, but with, you know, 600 sick, sick men moving into town, I, I think it'll be completely overwhelmed. I think Manusians seem to be a very... Um, Christian and quite welcoming people, but I think they've kind of been pushed beyond the pale in terms of having a tiny community and having this responsibility of Australia's thrust upon them. Um, and then all of the difficulties that have gone with that for three and a half years, plus seeing people locked up. I mean, no small community who sees other humans being mistreated in that way is going to put up with it. So I think it's really, really difficult for the Manusians. Mm. Were you able to talk to the refugees and what did they say to you about how they were feeling what their spirits were like at the moment they when we were there they were hopeless I guess is the best way to describe it because they just sort of thought this this is going to stretch on like this is a, we've had four and a half years of being locked up now we're living in this horrendous situation and if we do get moved then it's just going to stretch on forever um, and I think that's the feeling now like for a moment there they kind of had a bit of freedom inside this camp that they'd almost taken over um, and had a bit of agency and could care for themselves and make decisions to a degree. Now they've been moved into what they would term new prisons, which I would agree with. Um, there is a much freedom of movement. We've seen, I think, 54 people resettled to the United States, even though that deal was struck and announced almost a year ago now. Um, so I think they just see that their 
loss of freedom and, and kind of inability to live is stretching on into the indeterminal future and that's really difficult for them. Uh, we've had Peter Dutton say that the new facilities were complete and that they were luxurious and well equipped, even though we've had um, reported eyewitnesses account saying that that's not the case and you now say that people just simply do not have places to sleep or bare essentials. Does it surprise you that we can have this sort of situation where the minister in the government can say things that just simply are flat out not true about such an important issue? I think the key point of offshore processing is so that our government can lie about what's happening there and that's why they keep out reporters, they only allow in um, press that are kind of sympathetic to their cause. I mean, what was interesting for me was that when we tried to access those other sites in Loringau, there were PNG police and it was heavily guarded and we couldn't even get anywhere near the gates. So we looked from a distance and could see what was a construction site with bulldozers and building equipment still on it um, but whenever we went anywhere near the gates there was just too many authorities there and we couldn't get anywhere near it. Jesus. So uh, at this stage we've seen protests throughout the last couple of weeks here in Australia. We've had people calling their local members, calling the Prime Minister's office. Has there been any shift from the government at all from this? Not that we've seen. They just seem completely impenetrable in terms of their kind of pig-headed determination to continue with this policy. I mean, we've seen it for four and a half years now where they've just continued despite everything that happens, despite the cruelty that they're inflicting, despite all of the reports from international organisations and the United Nations stating that this is simply not okay. Um, The Australian government seems to be on some crazy tangent where they're not listening to anybody, but I suppose over a period of time they're going to have to listen to the electorate and we're coming up to an election next year. So I think it's up to the people of Australia to try to change um, the views not only of wider Australia but also of the politicians because, you know, fortunately for us we live in a democracy. Uh, Any any signs of... um Labor shifting its attitude? I mean, there's been bipartisan support in the past for the PNG solution. Is there any sign of a change there? Labor have started to make statements that I think they wouldn't have made before. Um, So they're pretty clear now that... um, and it's a little bit interesting that they're, they're kind of saying, oh, yes, we started this, but we wouldn't have carried it on this long or we would have found solutions... Um, these are things that they weren't necessarily saying before. They were very locked in step with the government on this issue. So it's good to see them in a slight shift. But um, at the end of the day, no solutions have been found in these men and everybody on the route need to be brought here and that's what we would like to see Labor saying. Is there any idea that the, that the majority of Australians are shifting on this issue as well? Like we saw the Prime Minister in Benelong on the weekend kind of talking about how Labor's planning on bringing all the refugees here and using that really kind of divisive language again. uh, It seems they seem to believe that the majority of Australians are kind of behind them on this policy. Where do you guys have an understanding of how the community is feeling on this? The community, I think, when it comes to extreme events, they'll start to sort of stand up and say that's not okay. So, I mean, we saw footage of people being beaten with metal sticks last week towards the end of the week. And and over the weekend, we did see like kind of a mass outpouring on the streets of people rallying against the policy. Um, I think public opinion is starting to shift to a degree, but there is a lot of work to do. Okay, so what's going to happen on Manus now? The, 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 the men have been put in these new half-finished 
camps, does anyone have a sense of what happens now? Well, that's what we don't know. I mean, as I say, the US deal was announced a very long time ago now and there's been no outcome. Our government pig-headedly insists on refusing to allow New Zealand to take any of these men. It's almost like, well, they are being held hostage for Australian political purposes. And as far as I can see, and I think as far as the men can see themselves, and that's what's so difficult for them to hold on to their sanity, is this is just going to stretch out until we put an end to it. Hmm. Okay, before we let you go, what can people do? What's coming up now? There have been protests over the weekend. Are there more actions uh, planned? What are you calling on people to do? We just need people to call their politicians, talk to their friends, educate people. So, you know, at your workplace, at the school pickup, wherever it is that you see people, you need to be talking about this issue and making people understand the truth of it. Um, and I guess help people to understand that they're being hoodwinked by this strange kind of dialogue that the the government is engaging in and um, call your politicians, call your MPs, call Malcolm Turnbull's office, call Dutton's office, um, call every politician that you can think of and make it very, very clear that you won't stand for this. We've been talking to N- Natasha Blucher from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Thanks so much for coming in. Three triple R. Time to talk about film with Hayley and Che. Going, Hayley? I'm good. How are we all this morning? Are we feeling a little bit, you know, successful, a little bit famous, or are we feeling a little bit like a disaster? Always Uh, a disaster. Somewhere in between. Is that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh, sorry. There we go. No, oh, that's all right. You can keep talking. That's no, okay. That's all right. Yeah. It's just fixing your mic a little oh, it's bit. It's all good. It's all yeah. good. Yes. Yeah, so the film that we're talking about this morning is The Disaster Artist, which yes. I believe you've all seen, which will be very exciting. So you could all yell at me if you think I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the key, the key thing about this movie. Key thing. Um, so The Disaster Artist is the new film directed and starring James Franco. And it's based on a very, very curious thing. It's based on the the story of the making of The Room, which is widely praised and or derided as the best worst movie ever made. It's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty fun. If you haven't gone to see a screening of The Room, it's kind of become like this big cult thing. Um, I definitely recommend seeing it in a cinema with people because this this thing is like, it's so, it's, it's so incompetent it actually boggles the yeah, mind. And it needs to be a shared experience. And it needs to be a shared experience because there's a lot of things that go into watching The Room. There's a lot mm. of things that have kind of built up around it, kind of like going to see Rocky Horror. Like you do things like throw plastic spoons at the screen and, you know, yell about footballs and roses and all of that sort of thing. But The Room was made by this guy, Tommy Wiseau, who's kind of this weird enigma who kind of came out of nowhere to make The Room, somehow had $6 million in order to make this extraordinarily incompetent film and ever since has kind of existed as kind of like this bizarre L.A fringe figure of an auteur who was kind of just like so crazy and out there that you know he's the the film that he made was so bad that people actually adore it yeah and it's kind of one of those things too where people think maybe he's a genius and he made like he's made this so bad for that very reason but then other people say no no he was just a guy that made a terrible film he was just a guy who was just very sincere in making his terrible film and I think that's what 
draws people in that they watch this going like no this was a person who sincerely thought they were doing their best and making a Tennessee Williams-esque masterpiece drama (laughs) (laughs) for me that was what really came across in the disaster artist what I really liked about it was it could have been really sort of sneering and kind of just made this guy to be this ridiculous figure it actually was kind of there's kind of a bit of heart to it. There, yeah. there is. It, it, it's definitely an endeavour that's been made with love. So um, James Franco and a lot of the other um, comedians involved in the film, like there are so many people in this who are, you know, big names, big faces, and they've literally wanted to work on this movie because they either love the room or they just love the whole weird idea of, of, of Tommy Wiseau as a figure. And um, so there's people like, you know, Seth Rogen, Kristen Bell, Alison Brie, uh, James Franco's own brother, Dave Franco, who plays Greg Sestero, who was Tommy's best friend. Who we and interviewed last week. Who we interviewed last week, week. Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of, you know, that there's all these kind of levels going on in it of, yes, it's based on a real movie that actually happened. It's being adapted by people who really love that terrible bad movie and you also get the extra level of it, of that there's two brothers taking the lead role and kind of like acting against each other in it. Which is kind of cool in and of itself. Now, the one thing I realised too is you don't have to have seen The Room <gasps> Absolutely to, to not. get this film. Like no. it's, it's a really enjoy. It kind of explains The Room to you and you get to enjoy the ride. <laughs> you do very, very get to enjoy the ride. It, it, it almost, um, you're watching this and I'm as someone who has seen The Room multiple times but you watch it kind of just going like wow it really just gives you that beautiful train wreck experience of watching the room while also giving you a nice coherent story as well and good performances and, oh sorry it's as someone that has watched the room a few times you probably know a few ins and outs was there anything extra in the disaster movie that you went oh, i didn't realize that was what happened? I think, yeah, getting that kind of backstage look and kind of seeing how the film was put together um, mm. w- w- was really intriguing. I think if you're a Room super fan and you've also read Sestero's book that this was based on, you know, I think this would just be a nice experience to see this world that you love recreated. But if you don't know anything about the room, like, you'll go into this and your jaw will drop. You'll just be like, how... How did this happen? How did these people come together? How did everyone making this movie not realise quite the Titanic-sized disaster that it was going to end up becoming? It's it's a very funny film, but it's also struck me as it's kind of like a love letter to the cinema, isn't it? I mean, there's a great line that I think the Jackie Weaver character has where she says something like, the worst day on a film set is better than the the, the, the best day somewhere else. else. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is a really beautiful love letter to movies. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this film didn't do quite well during the upcoming awards season just purely because Hollywood loves a movie that is positive about the movies Mm. and and about the movie-making experience. And that's the thing. Like, the movie is filled with all these characters who are star-eyed dreamers who are, you know, let's be real, they're pretty bad Mm. at acting and directing and everything like that, but they still persevere. They still persevere with this crazy dream. And the figure of Wiseau, as portrayed by James Franco, is just this... He he gives Wiseau so much empathy and so much understanding standing as that like here's a guy who was such a weird figure with his you know his bizarre accent his long hair you know people keep calling him a vampire or a frankenstein that sort of thing and this is a guy who 
just like he just wanted to be a big dramatic hero and no one would give him that chance because of how he looked and how he spoke so he just decided I'm gonna do this for me and and also for Greg and and everyone else who ended up working on the movie and then you know his his ego gets out of control and everything just kind of yeah. <laughs> kind of collapses and but the performances are phenomenal like I just thought this really was such are. a great film and it, Tommy was always so idiosyncratic in the way he, like you said the way he talks where he moves his facial kind of he's got a bit of facial disfigurement from an mm. accident but Franco plays that and you're laughing with him but it's not at Tommy which no. is such a fine line mm. I think it is I think a lot of fans of the room were really worried when this film was floated they were just like oh my god you know is it just going to be a movie making fun of Tommy but it seems like Franco is actually really in simpatico with 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 Wiseau's whole deal and there, there are some points in the movie I, I think the strongest part of the film is is towards the end where they have the premiere of the room and there's a moment where everybody is laughing and then you pan to Franco's Wazo and he is crying mm-hmm. and it's just the moment where you sit there just going oh my god I've been laughing at this movie and this guy for years uh, am I a monster for doing that for laughing mm-hmm. at someone's artistic dream that just that, that just went off the rails um but yeah, it, it, it yeah, like you said, the performances are really gorgeous. Um, look, you know, awards season started in earnest this week. The uh, yesterday, the Gotham Awards and also the National Board of Review Awards were given, and both awards gave Best Actor to James Franco. <gasps> really? So look, mm. you know, I am possibly beside myself with the thought that the real Tommy Wiseau may actually show up at the Oscars this year. Oh, and he definitely that is will. A dream. It is a dream. Yeah, it'll be so. Before we said we were. Talking by the publicist to make sure that we stick around until after the credits. <gasps> yes. So we should just pass that on to people because it's you definitely worth doing that. worth staying on because, of course, you know, Franco met with Wizzo to get his blessing for the film and, you know, Wizzo, after insisting that only Johnny Depp could play him, would then, <laughs> only then, accept that Franco was an acceptable second choice, <laughs> also only demanded that he got a 40-second cameo in the film. So, <laughs> wait after the credits. <laughs> Thanks, Hayley Inch. The film is The Disaster Artist. We'll talk to you again soon. See you then. Three. Triple. Conrad Marshall is a senior writer with Fairfax Media, but more importantly, he's a Richmond Tigers tragic. And throughout the summer of 2016 and the entire 2017 AFL season, Marshall had unprecedented access to the inner sanctum of the Richmond Football Club, chronicling the year that led to the Tigers breaking a 37-year premiership drought in the book Yellow and Black, A Season with Richmond. Much to my delight, Conrad joins us now in the Breakfaster studio. Welcome. Thanks, Sarah. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, as we've established off air and as most regular listeners would know, I'm a bit of a tiger fanatic. Look at her shirt. <laughs> oh, my tiger awesome. shirt today. Uh, so in the interests of those who are not tiger supporters and Jeff, who doesn't like football, I'll endeavour not to spend the next 15 minutes just asking about Dustin Martin, even though I'd like to. Uh, so the book itself, though, is you don't really have to be a tiger fan to read it because it is the most amazing insight into the inner workings of an AFL club that I've kind of ever read. Oh, How, thank you. That's all right. How did you... Well, how did this come about and how did you kind of win over the trust of the club to be able to be kind of at the heart of everything they do? 
Um, I'm really glad you said that because um, that's what I was going for with the book. Like it turned out to be the story of a flag, but I wanted it to be the story of what life is like inside a big Melbourne football club, just their daily rhythms and how they get things done. And so I just approached the club after one of their horrible elimination finals losses. You remember that one in how 2015? Um <laughs> When they looked like a team that was ready to go one step better and um, they just sort of... I must have struck the communications manager on a good day. Uh, You're a lifetime Tiger supporter. Yes. Did you think you were actually going to get the story? Did you think... Like, did you go, I'll just see what happens here? Like, when they said, yep, yep, you can come in, do what you want to do, what was that day like? Oh, it was it was fantastic. I was over the moon and then uh, uh, lined it up and my first day of reporting at pre-season um, training was my birthday. And it was so oh, January God. 4, go out, <laughs> hang out with Richmond players and coaches for the day. Like, And then I did that for two years. So it was just this dream come true. So in the book you have access to the most the places that we never get access to as fans. We kind of see players on the field and we see the coaches at press conferences and everything's super controlled. But you were in coaches meeting, board meetings, you were in with like player pep talks at half time, which is quite amazing. I was wondering if you could yeah. describe what it's like in a coach's box at a game. Oh, it's it's insane. They have so many more people than you think. I mean, the cameras pan on on the one coach and he's going off and belting his hand on the desk, but there's 12 or so people. There are all these screens going. There are um, coaches watching every part of the field and not just the ball, and they're relaying instructions down the phone, and those are going through other people at the bench. And I don't know how they get it all done except just through this, this sheer bulk of numbers that kind of surround what it is they do. And somehow it all comes off. And it, it did on that one occasion that I wrote about it in the book. We had a very nice win over Melbourne. Did you feel like ever you had to get out of a room? Were you ever like, this is so uncomfortable that I need to exit the, you know, I'm not meant to be here? Uh, look, I felt sometimes like I really need to make sure that I'm very quiet and a total fly on the wall here because I have no business being in this meeting. Um, but I was only uh, actually asked to leave a couple of times and that was after a few sort of surprise losses and um, particularly sort of bad defeats. It was like, Conrad, do you mind stepping out for, <laughs> for this briefing? It's like, yep, no worries, out I go. Um, were yeah. there times though in the coach's box that you were like, put him up forward? <laughs> 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 no, no, they all know much, much better than me. But um, it was really, <clears throat> really great to see it all up close and just how they make those moves and what it looks like on the field. What was the biggest surprise for you about the life of a professional athlete that you hadn't sort of expected? Oh, just that daily grind of meetings and analysis. I think when they talk, when they use those words structures to describe um, how players um, <clears throat> need to shape themselves on the field, I don't think most of us know what that means. And when you learn the, the depth of analysis and planning that goes into the way they put together their game plan and implement it on the field, it's it's insane the level of detail that's required. And honestly, I've followed football all my life and I would watch these opposition analysis meetings, for instance, and I could not I could not understand it. I couldn't tell you what they was what they were talking about. And I would have to get a assistant coach to sit down and explain it to me later. Like 
Tell me what that play meant because I have no idea. I was struck also by how um, structured players' lives are. So they, they effectively work six days a week, have a one roster day off. And there's a scene, scene in the book. You write about this moment in the book where you have some young first, second-year players sitting down with someone who manages their health and who manages their well-being and they've got food on the table and they're saying, you know, find me 20 grams of carbohydrates that you have to eat after a game. And were you kind of, could you talk about that a little bit? Were you surprised by how managed the players' lives are? And does that affect them? Because they're, they're young men, you know, who otherwise would probably be out getting drunk at pubs. Yeah, I think sometimes they're, they're boys, really. They, yeah. they come in and they're 17, 18. And um, yeah, that, that scene that you described was just with the nutritionist and the player welfare manager. And they would sit down and they really have to walk them through their lives. When they first come over, they might go uh, shopping with them to get a mattress. And um, with that nutrition stuff, they would actually walk them down to the Coles on Swan Street and, you know, pick up items of uh, food to look at the back and teach them how to read the nutrition labels so that they would understand what it is they're ingesting. And it just goes into so much depth, teaching them about sleep rhythms and um, respect and responsibility and financial management. And yeah. Wow. There's, um, there's also a bit in the book, it's a kind of an interesting passage where you describe footy clubs as among the most accepting environments in our society. Say so one of the most welcoming, welcoming and undiscriminating of community centres. Now, footy has always been a great class leveller, but it hasn't always felt welcoming for everyone. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that was um, in reference to, I guess I was hanging out with the VFL club for a week and I got to see, and, and this is true at the AFL level too, just how much they rely on volunteers. These clubs may be multi-million dollar outfits, but they literally cannot survive without the volunteer workforce that they have. We're talking about dozens and dozens of people who come in and wash the jumpers and sweep the rooms and do all of this stuff because they want to be part of the team. They want to be proximate to the people that they see on TV, these stars. And um, so both the people that come in and help and the club itself get something from that exchange. And I just met so many people that were really salt of the earth and the club meant everything to them. And I don't know, it's really, it's touching when you see it up close. Yeah, for sure. No, go, go. I was going to say, who's the player that surprised you the most in terms of what we see in the media out here and what they're like inside of the club? Yeah, I I got asked this um, last night, actually, and I I think it'd have to be Trent Cotcham, but mostly because of the two years that I was able to see at the club. So in 2016, he was a very closed-off sort of figure, or at least... I mean, in his role as captain, he has to um, front the media all the time. And so he'd have all these sort of rote responses to things. And he was really not wooden, but he was just sort of staged and holding something back and trying to put up this front. And he talked about that himself. And then this year, after this period of soul searching in this horrible 2016 season, he was just a different person, a totally different character. He runs around the club. Um, tapping people on the asses, handballing the ball <laughs> into the back of their head while they're not watching. He's constantly got a joke. He's dropping F-bombs everywhere he goes. Like, And he just became this, you know, light, funny, warm, open person and kind of allowed everybody else in the club and within the team to become that as well. Oh, Dur- oh, oh no, no, during, you Yeah, during your time there over the two years, at, at what point did you go, oh, I think, 
I think we're going to win the flag. (laughs) (laughs) I reckon the only time I thought that was a legit possibility, and I'll be honest, it would be after the Geelong um, final, after the qualifying final, because... I'm a Richmond supporter. We're a fatalistic bunch. We've had a lot <laughs> yeah. of a lot of heartache served up. So even though they were on this tremendous run, it's it's hard to believe mm. deep down. The publisher you, you must, have been, must have been pleased yeah. <laughs> with that trajectory. <laughs> yeah, Cha-ching. he's a punter. Yeah, that gamble paid off. Um, there's been conversations during the year about the shift in Tigers' attitude. And in the book, there's all these words. You keep using words like love vulnerability, relationships. There's a point where Dimmer, our coach, says he loves a player openly. Uh, It really surprised me because it is such an alpha world and for a long time the sport has been all about kind of maintaining a a solid outward outwardness, I suppose, rather than being really vulnerable. And they held these things called the Triple H sessions and I was wondering if you could possibly talk about what the Triple H sessions were um, to explain this attitude in the club. Yeah, so that was a a thing that um, Dimmer had read about in a a book by an American leadership guru and um, the H's stand for um, hero, hardship and highlight. And basically every player um, at some stage this year had to get up in front of the group, in front of all 44 other players and all of the um, coaches and assistant coaches and share a story of each of those H's. And the first person to do that was Brandon Ellis, a young halfback flank, and he got up and told the story story of um, his dad's battle with cancer and how he thought he was going to lose him and and I mean going into real detail and and bearing his soul sort of saying how when he found out he was just in tears and all he wanted to do was get into bed with his dad and and cuddle him for hours. Uh, Then there was the story of his hardship which was growing up in the housing commission flats and just feeling ashamed of where he lived and embarrassed and like scum all his life and then uh, and then his highlight was being drafted and in part because he knew he could get these contracts that would help support him and his family and get them a lease at a nice house in Mooney Ponds so that his mum could have a veggie garden for the first time. And every player did these sessions and ultimately it sort of meant that they knew one another better and would play for one another. Yeah, wow. And they also kind of embrace meditation, I guess. There's there's someone in the book um, called Emma Murray and she's employed by the team to practice mindfulness at a really kind of high level can you talk a little bit about that as well because I was so surprised by that I had this idea of clubs being so tough and but this is all about kind of meditating and you know listening to your inner self yeah yeah Emma Murray is a a mindfulness coach and she came into the club a couple of years ago to work with just a few individuals mainly Dylan Grimes and Steve Morris and Sam Lloyd and a little bit more last year it became a sort of full club thing where lots of players had different sessions and she guides them through sort of visualisation and breathing and, um, you know, she she will stand in the front of an auditorium with all of these players and say, close your eyes, oh. feel your breath going, <laughs> you know, in your chest. Imagine what your best football looks like. Um, imagine what your teammates' best football looks like. Think about how that feels in your body. Feel, think about how that feels in your toes and what sensations you're having and what it looks like. And it, it's just uh, amazing to watch. And then she would do all sorts of individual sessions and sessions with different lines to bring them together. And it was just part of this whole new program that they, they ramped up really over the last 18 months. And I don't know how effective it is. All I know is that all of the players or, or most of the players buy into it um, and that's probably what's most important, really. You talk a lot about, um, you know, the sense of community and it just seems that um, the football club 
it's not just the players on the field, but it's the board members and it's the people making the banners and stuff. And it's everyone it all seems to be playing on on the same team. Would that be true? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they probably took that somewhat from the Bulldogs the previous year. They had sort of a slogan about, um, you know, being three teams, one club. Um, Richmond really wanted to strive for that same sort of unity. And I think their buzzword over the preseason was connection. That could be connection between players and other players, players and coaches, coaches and other coaches, coaches and football department managers and the board and the admin. And they just wanted to be this connected organisation. And it certainly felt that way like everything was aligned from Peggy O'Neill at the top down to you know Brendan Gale next and then the admin football department coaches players fans volunteers they talk about the fans all the time I mean they might seem like an afterthought but really in meetings when they're about to go out onto the ground or um, during the week they, they talk about how the the fans have been or had been starved of success and you know, they would ask, I remember Damien asking um, Sean Grig, Grigger, what do you want our fans to see out there tomorrow night? What, what do you think they want to see us put out there on the park? And I think, you know, the Tiger Army would probably be pleased to know that, that they're thought of. Yeah, I certainly am. Uh, how has writing this book changed your relationship then with football and the club? Like you got to stand in a room when your team won a premiership and be with them and celebrate with them. Can you just go back to being in the stands and enjoying football as football? It's going to be really hard. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest. Like, it's it's been two full years now of basically being in the rooms and at halftime and after the game for every game and lurking around the, the, the rooms at, uh, during the week and <laughs> learning what the strategy was this week and then watching it actually unfold on the field. Like, that's pretty thrilling to see it, see the the planning put in place and then actually delivered out there, made manifest. And uh, But I'd never got to, you know, I'd watch a lot of games from media centres where you don't barrack um, and it might be fun. It might be a lot of fun to go Get back into the stands it. with my friends, yeah. grab a beer, roar like an idiot and Get sing the song it. afterwards. I yeah. have to go because I've made this interview go for way too long. But last question, what's Dustin Martin like and do you think he wants to be my mate? Dusty, <laughs> <laughs> he's a lovely, lovely boy. Very shy, and I, I feel for him at times, just with the the focus that's on him and the eyes that turn in his direction everywhere he goes. But he's a lovely guy. He just um, holds the people that he likes closest to him. Thank you. The book is Yellow and Black: A Season with Richmond. Uh, the author is Conrad Marshall. Thank you very much for coming in today. No, thank you. It's been fun. You're entrepreneur. Three triple R. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine. Um, been doing a bit of looking at um, going to house inspections. Got you know friends um, that are looking, and what a fun thing to do on a weekend. Um, is it? Is it really? <laughs> I love doing house inspections. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah. If the pressure's not on for you to find a house or a room or a, whatever you need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're just a tagging yeah, sticky along. Beaking. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, Legal sticky beaking. Yeah, because, you know, we all know it's it's fun. when You know when you go on a nighttime walk and someone's left their door open, you yeah. know, and their yes. window and you can just... I, you always look in the a, window. Yeah, have a sneaky peek inside. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going to go. No, not like just let you wander in. Oh, no, no, no. Just the I love those old houses where they've got the big hallway and yeah. you look straight down like what's going on what's in there? What's happening in there? 
What are you doing? Just watching a bit of telly? But then when you make eye contact with someone, you feel like a creep dog. Yes. So just... It's a fine line. Yeah. We're not encouraging being pe- yeah. peeping toms. Yeah. No, not at all. But but if you do want... No. <laughs> uh, but going to, you know, inspections, especially, the, you know, the ones where people are still living there. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever been living in a place where they've gone, oh, you know... Yes. Oh, have you? Yeah. Uh, we, we were renting a place and not only did they tell us that we had to get out so they could sell it, but they started doing the inspections while we were still there. No. Yeah. Yeah, we, I had that as well. Yeah. Uh, place. Did, what, did they just rock up on the day and go, right, it's inspection? Oh, they gave you times, you know, and you could get it. It was kind of like because you were so sullen about the whole thing. It's kind of like, you, you know, you don't want to make a good impression. No. You felt like you should grab hold of the people afterwards and say, look, let me tell you a thing or two about this house. Wow. <laughs> I, I, know, I remember that. Mine was just that we were moving out and the, the real estate agent wasn't, it was just annoyed that we weren't signing another lease because like, I think it was a bother for them. And they're like, well, we're going to start inspections right away. And they were just bringing people through the house. And I'd just hang out about the front. But it was always weird because then people would interact. If I was in the house, people would interact. I'd be like, so you live here and, oh, who's the musician? Oh, and, oh, what do you what do you do? And I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. I yeah. just get out of my yeah. house. Yeah. yeah. Don't open yeah. my cupboards. Yeah, they walk into your bedroom and yeah. Yeah, it's just creepy. It is creepy. That is, why would you hang around for that? Well, because I was worried people were going to steal <laughs> yes, my stuff. Totally. Oh, okay. So right. I, I kept saying, I was like, you know, you're taking their names, their numbers. Yeah. How do you know they're not just here to rob me? Like, I just Yeah, felt, just walk through the bedroom. Yeah. I'll have one of that. I'll take that. Yeah. Thank you very much. I would... If I was in a house inspection where you were there and it's your house, I would open your cupboard doors and the whole time maintain eye contact with you. <laughs> go, mm. Just pull stuff out and go, oh, when was the last time you wore that? Just do a bit oh, of the that. The whole thing, I, I think I've told you this story before, but I was looking in an apartment in the city and they were really, really keen you know, for us to, to move in. They took us on an inspection and the people were there. And not only were they there, they were asleep in their bed. <gasps> so we opened the door and there was this couple asleep in their bed. And the, it's and the, disgusting. The station was just not abashed at all. Just say, oh, yeah, here's the bedroom. You see, you could do this. These were these poor bloody people. Wow. Did you say did you say No, well, I just, I, I realised very quickly I didn't want to, you know, have anything yeah. to do with these people. Whatever, I felt so, so bad for these Tenants, you know, because it's like he's talking about them; they're not there. Did they go? Oh, just about to open the door, going, "Oh, you sleep? That's what you do in here." Perfect example <laughs> happening right there, right now. There is exactly what it's going to look like. I inspected a place in Sydney once too, and it was just you know for a room in a big share house. And when I got there. The whole experience was horrible. The first thing they did was take me to a list of chores on the fridge and said, well, this is all the chores that everyone does and you'd be put on this roster. And I thought, this is not the first thing you show someone when they walk in to come and have a look at a house. And then they took me to the room that was actually like a detached shed. None of this had been in the, you know, like a, kind of a shed thing or a thing like mm. hacked onto the back of the house. And it was the exact same experience as that. They opened the door, but all there was was this empty room and a gross mattress on the ground with like an English backpacker in it. And he was like, hello. <laughs> he sat up and said, hello. Well, that's probably not exactly how he sounded. It wasn't like Cockney. But anyway, hello, hello, hello. Something like that. And I just thought, this is disgusting. I need to leave. Was wow. the implication this was the guy who hadn't been doing the chores? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was the room. Oh, so, yeah. I, I went to, a, years ago when I was looking for a share house and I went to this place, a place I ended up living because the person there made me a sandwich. 
It's great. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, that is very thoughtful. You know, it was a, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to have some lunch. And so we sat down at his sandwich and chatted and and then it was like, do you want to move in? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. So and you was, got along well? Yeah, she made me a sandwich. Of course, we yeah, right. got along well. That's nice. Yeah, I've always find those interviews so awkward. Those ones where you have to—have you ever had to interview yes. someone else for oh, to come man. into your house? Oh no, I haven't done that actually. I've oh, been yeah. to plenty uh, of them. Like it's—it's it's a weird going into like uh, application mode for somewhere that you, where you're going to live, and I think that's why this sandwich lady was was the best because it was you know. We're going to live together. We're going to have to kind of be mates. So yeah. let's not – I'm not going to treat you like a potential, you know, employee type but scenario. that's it. I mean, though, what kind of version of you did you present when you're being interviewed to go into a house? Was there – did you cover things up about yourself? Because it's quite nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm very clean and tidy. <laughs> I mean, I just cover things up about myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> we were in a group house of about four or five people and there, there was always one room that was, you know, because there that many people. There's always mm. people coming and going, yeah. you're all students or whatever. But, yeah, those awkward things where you'd have these lists of people, they would come in and they would sit down and we would all ask them these stupid questions. And because, like, you know, we were just teenagers, so we didn't know how to properly... You just got to feel out the so vibe just ask somebody. dumb questions, you know. What you, music do you like? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but hang on, don't like music too much because we don't want you to be a drummer. Or, yeah. You know, do you have a pet? How demeaning is it when you're the person who was interviewed and you get a text five minutes after you leave going, we've given the room to someone else? Jeez, oh, <laughs> if you had that. Once. Wow. I know. Five minutes after I'd left and I thought it had been a really good conversation. I was feeling really confident. Oh, that's, I was like, at least yeah. let me get home before you send me a text. <laughs> it's like oh. they had to do it so Telling her the shit personality. Out the yeah. Quickly text her. She oh, is out. Mate. I know. Oh, that's brutal. That is brutal. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.